0: financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716 716- 630 2400. Again, 716 630 2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs, and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my co host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. We're going to be joined uh, later on by former Bills offensive lineman, Jerry Ostrowski. We're going to talk about the current state of the Bills offensive line through the eyes of somebody who knows what the fuck he's talking about. Because uh, it's hard. It's hard to really know what goes on in the trenches uh, unless you have a trained eye. And there are a lot of people out there and I've... uh, kind of poked fun at it before, who like to think that they know what's going on in there and uh, don't. And I am I am willing to admit that uh, I have no idea uh, what I'm looking at when it comes to offensive line play. So Jerry Ostrowski is going to talk to us about that. And another thing I don't know anything about, one of the reasons that Jerry Ostrowski reached out to me on Twitter was uh, a couple of weeks ago I tweeted that, I don't give a shit about what's going on with Stefan Diggs because I don't know what's going on with Stefan Diggs and until I do I can't have an opinion on it. And um I, I think it's interesting. My most the most interesting thing, Jonah, about this Stefan Diggs thing isn't whether it's good uh or bad, good for the media or bad for the Bills or whatever. It's that we still don't know. And that Josh Allen is uh, going on podcasts and talking about uh, how the media is blowing this out of proportion when um, if it's so innocent, then why don't we know what the reason is? But we'll talk to Jerry Ostrowski about that. And he was in the locker room for a long time, played for the Bills from 94 to 2001. Uh, He'll get his. Uh, we'll get his take on uh, the media and uh, his experience with it now that he's on the other side as an observer who who talks about the Bills on a podcast. Uh, anyways, um, before we get to uh, Jerry Ostrowski, though, Joan, I want to talk uh, about the Sabres mostly uh, and uh, what else is going on here in Western New York in the sporting world that's been kind of busy for the what's supposed to be the slow summer. Um, your takeaways from the Sabres, the draft and uh, free agency.
1: Yeah, it was an eventful 10 days or so since the last time we spoke here between the draft, free agency comes up right after the draft and then development camp opens almost immediately after that first day of free agency and the Sabres have made not a lot of moves, some fringe moves, but did pretty well, I think, in the draft. At least they seem to be happy with their haul, especially with the first round pick, Zach Benson. And, him falling maybe a couple spots. And I think the Sabres did what they wanted to do in free agency. It wasn't necessarily what a lot of fans and analysts and different people in the media might have been projecting or fantasizing about. It wasn't big, splashy moves getting the defenseman, Connor Clifton from Boston, and Eric Johnson, a former Cup winner uh, with Colorado. But it makes marginal additions that I think are going to help the Sabres and keep them on track to where they want to go while still preserving the different salary flexibility and assets and trades that they can still make to maybe make a bigger splash move down the line.
0: All right, what about the goaltending part of it though? That seems to be uh the biggest uh, mystery still. I know that Devin Levi's uh, on his well, way uh, in terms of uh development and but what what did we learn I guess about what the Sabers think of Devin Levi over the last 10 days
1: well I think the Sabres took a lot of Devin Levi not just as the goaltender of the future but probably the number one goaltender in the present and I think you used the word mystery I think I don't think there's been much mystery with the Sabres goaltenders they've had these goaltenders on the team and they've told us that as Kevin Adams says he thinks they're dealing from a position of strength with the three goaltenders they have under contract and at last year at various points they had up to four goaltenders on the roster and there's been rumors about trading for Connor Hellerbuck or uh, fans wanting different goaltenders that, that might be available for the Sabres to go after. But the Sabres have really, Kevin Adams has really made no indication that he was in the market for a new goaltender. And I think without they've said it, and they've also made it known with their actions that uh, the plan is to go into next season with Devin Levi, Uka and go into camp at least with Eric Comrie and there might be a way where the, Sab- I, the pre- Sabres probably will waive Eric Comrie if everybody's healthy and everybody's playing well in the camp. But if there's an injury or if UPL uh, is playing poorly in the preseason, I, I think there's a scenario where Comrie is the backup goalie. But I don't anticipate or don't think there's any intrigue or mystery as who the Sabres will be bringing in to compete with any of these goaltenders. Because I think, at least for now, they're set with the group they have.
0: My observations were pretty uh, distant, I think, regarding the Sabres at the draft, which I think they should be. The draft, unless you're picking the top two or three spots, you're looking at a player you're not going to see for a little while. Um, there was a picture uh, yesterday uh, from Niagara Falls in which all the draft picks were were posing there at uh, – at the falls and you can just see it and you saw it too, as they come to stage and put on their jerseys. Uh, these are children. Uh, and it's one of the big, uh, bugaboos of the NHL draft, especially f- in a market like Buffalo, where you are so enthused about the NFL draft. And then you switch a couple of months later and talk about the NHL draft. I think there's a, a, um, Let me let me put it this way. When I say a market like Buffalo, where they put so much into the energy, that is, the energy of the fans into the draft, most markets I don't think give a shit about the draft. You're talking about the Canadian markets, Buffalo, other markets, they just have so much else going on. It's baseball season, so they don't really care as much in Boston about the draft or New York. Rangers fans aren't as into it as Sabres fans. Well, and I, I got
1: just to interject real quick, yeah. I got one of those press release emails and you take those with a grain of salt sometimes, but they're interesting. And it said Buffalo was the number one market for internet searches of the NHL draft. So at least in terms of the US markets, it's bigger in Buffalo than anywhere else.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that yeah, that's a great piece of anecdotal information. Or maybe it's more than anecdotal. That's actual data about uh, what the Buffalo market thinks uh, about, uh, about these kids coming in. But I think that when I, when I was juxtaposing the Bills and the Sabres, you get a, a quicker payoff. You know more about the, the football players as they're coming out of college. There's video on these guys. The NFL media complex, uh, the industrial complex that is uh, the NFL draft, uh, pushing so much information on you about these draft picks, mock drafts. Uh, There's such a long run up to it. Whereas in the NHL, you're just coming off of the Stanley Cup run. And if you're a hockey fan that you have that to whet your appetite, whereas football fans are so hungry and they dive in and there's so much more readily available to them that when you come around to the NHL draft, you, you have those NFL muscles in play for a lot of fans who are really into it and you try to apply the same energy and meaning that you had in the NFL draft to your NHL draft picks. And it is such, and I know that I use this phrase a lot on the podcast, wasted energy. And it's one of those things that I have a hard time. I think the NFL draft, all the, all the um, lead up to that is wasted energy. So the NHL aspect of it, multiply it by a hundred because you take a look at the stats of guys who are drafted uh, in the first round. From five, seven years ago, and you take a look and see how many of them have still to date only played ten NHL games or twenty, or they made they made it for a cup of coffee here, or they're playing and they're on a fourth line, or they're on the you know the second defensive pair on a below average team. Um, So it, it is it's it's difficult sometimes to really invest, and you're talking to a guy who covered it for seven years and. I covered a lot of draft picks where I was feverishly writing about these guys um, for uh, the time of the draft and then the rookie camp and their first training camp. And and then you never hear from them again. Uh, Literally, like they don't even make it. And these are first round picks. Um, They stay in their homeland, whether it be Russia or Finland, or they go back to their college team and the Sabres don't even sign them you know a Barrett Heiston for instance uh, comes to mind and the sabers don't even get the guy under contract anyways it's um it, it was interesting to watch just to to see who they pick and there was some curiosity there um the real rubber hitting the road is with the trades for me at the draft and the sabers were not active there people were hoping that Kevin Adams might be just for the sake of uh interest because it's it makes makes the draft that much more interesting and Nobody uh, and went, then there
1: were no no trades on the first night of the draft in the first yeah draft.
0: it was wild um th- yeah it, may, it might. that might be the most interesting thing of the first round of the NHL draft this year uh and then um with the free agency thing is that's when it really uh was when i started paying attention and i thought the sabers made some smart moves i don't the prudent uh nothing crazy uh they didn't get over their skis um, what I'd like for them to have done more from a sense of making it a little more colorful and putting a little more meat on the podcast bone, uh, some, some guys to talk about or think about maybe, uh, but it seems as though Kevin Adams is not getting out of his comfort zone or, uh, deviating from his master plan, uh, because of how the how the Sabres appear to be on the cusp. they're they're he's sticking to his plan.
1: Yeah, I think that's from a macro zoom out perspective. The biggest thing that's been happening with the Sabres going back a year and a half, even maybe two full seasons now, in that even though they're in the longest playout drought in NHL history, and it's not quite like the Bills drought, but it does seem to be this cloud that's been hanging over the Buffalo hockey market and franchise for so many years you would think there would be more urgency and more people on the hot seat and more desperation to make this team playoff caliber right away and maximize the future trading prospects or future first-round picks or turning young players into more veteran help and filling immediate needs. And there really hasn't been none of that. And, you know, a couple of years ago you could have said, well, the Sabres are years away. They should be taking this long-range plan. But now that the Sabres are right there on the verge of being a playoff team, I think there's a segment of the fan base and the media that have been waiting for that big splash move that says, "Hey, we're going for it." Even if that, even if it means more in that image building kind of thing than it does for the hockey club, the Sabers haven't brought in the big name, or they didn't really, they didn't make any moves to get better at forward or goaltending for next season. They did maybe get better at defense, although it didn't get the big top four defensemen that a lot of people were projecting. So they they've they haven't swung for the fence yet. They didn't do it at the trade deadline. They didn't do it this offseason. They didn't do it last offseason. They didn't do it by trading a draft pick or a future prospect or a draft pick at the draft. There are smaller trades that they still are probably going to make between now and the start of the season, I think. But I don't know if we're going to see a big trade until possibly the deadline. And I don't know. I think the question is, is that enough? Can the Sabres develop this team organically and be a Stanley Cup contender without ever making that? slightly desperate move, or do they need to make the Von Miller signing or something like that? And do they need to do that, or should they do that, just for the sake of the fan base and the excitement and selling tickets? They've avoided that. They've avoided making a move just for the sake of making a move and getting people excited, except for maybe – I suppose you could say they did a little bit of that at the trade deadline last year. But they haven't brought in the big name or the big splash or fill the – Yeah, there's no –
0: For people who are looking for that or hoping for that the rejoinder would be Taylor hall. Uh, just because you sign a big name doesn't mean anything. Um, because sometimes these guys are available for a reason, uh, because they have lost a, a stride because they, uh, just don't have it anymore because they are just looking for money and don't really care about winning. And sometimes there's a, uh, to, to flip over to the other sport, a Terrell Owens sitting around out there that gives you a splash and gives you the attention that you're looking for. But this is uh, – the, the Sabres at this juncture don't need that. They don't need a splash. They, they are relevant. They are – people are starting to pay attention. And Matthew Fairburn of the Athletic had a great nugget from the scouting combine last month in which players are telling their agents to take the Sabres off of their no trade lists, which I thought was one of the sexiest bits of information to come out of the combine. I thought that was a great sign um, and great reporting from Matthew. Um, and then I think uh, there's been some reporting since then about, you know, just free agents, maybe feeling more willing to talk with the Sabres where it used to be a, a total no-go uh, in recent years. But Yeah. The players are noticing and Eric Johnson, of course, he's a name. Uh, He comes with leadership. He comes with a cup uh, uh, credential and former first overall pick the whole thing, which I covered by the way, that's how old Eric Johnson is. I covered his draft. Um, But it's, it's a sign. It's a sign that, you know, um, when Eric Stahl was devastated to be traded to the Sabres, uh, here, you know, on the flip side, a couple years later, you have Eric Johnson who is choosing to come to the Buffalo Sabres. And I think that there's uh, uh, there's something telling in, in that. Um, I guess before we get to Jerry Ostrowski, I want to touch on um, Jonah Heim, a former Amherst High School uh, catcher who is now on the verge of starting in the Major League baseball all-star game for the American League um i mean how far back do we have to go to find do we Dave Hollins? maybe i mean i don't so, I don't rec- I don't recall who made the all-star game from western new york um but as a well, starter for sure point. warren Spahn. i'm guessing warren Spahn started a all-star game
1: so you don't have to go back very far i'll tell you why in a second but you're actually correct in that Dave Hollins is the last time that a player went to a Western New York high school and and was drafted out of high school, eventually made it to a MLB all-star game. And Warren Spahn was the last Western New York native to start the all-star game, except for, That was pretty good of me to guess. Yeah, those were good.
0: For a non-local.
1: You might've read it in a story that someone on this podcast may have written or not. That's not true. I was totally guessing on that
0: because I have Uh, no idea what you're about to say next.
1: Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Jesse Winker is a pitcher that pitched in the All-Star Game and I believe started two years ago. He was born in a Buffalo hospital, lived in Niagara Falls for seven years, I believe, and then moved away. So technically, if you're talking natives and people from here, Oral Oral Hirschheiser would be another one in that category. But if you're talking people who were born here, stayed here, and were drafted out of Western New York, and, and I think Jesse Winker claims this is his hometown, but really are native and never left. West New Yorkers, Dave Hollins, Warren Spahn. Those are the names that, that you have to go back to. And I, I'd have to look up this name. I think it's been 1948, and, and I don't remember who that was because I wasn't around back then, since you had a starting catcher from West New York. So very long time Jonah Heim is going to be breaking through at that. And it's interesting with Jonah Heim because he was drafted 10 years ago in the fifth round and has developed kind of nicely, but he only became a starter, an everyday starter last year. And he came to play in Buffalo with the Rangers a couple of years ago and was the backup catcher and had a nice moment getting a base hit in his hometown, but he didn't seem like a budding all-star, but he's gotten better and better. And now he's maybe the best catcher in baseball. And he's having a statistical season for a team in first place that Barrett's starting an all-star game.
0: Yeah, that is pretty cool. And it's gotta be a carrot for Joe Mack, who is uh, still down in the low minors with the uh, Miami Marlins uh, first round pick from a couple of years ago uh, from Williamsville East. Uh, He's been catching and, uh, playing a couple other positions pres- i think he's dhing a bit maybe he's playing some first i don't know but um last time i checked but uh pretty cool for western new york to have a catcher starting in the uh in the all-star game um anything else we want to get to real quick i mean do we have anything like within that we can get to in a couple of minutes before jerry ostrowski joins us
1: um maybe i'll just mention if people don't know that all-star game's tuesday night the mlb all-star game if we don't have another podcast in between then and i'll just shout out a name a girl from allegheny limestone high school angelina napoleon was named gatorade national player of the year in track she's the first high school athlete from western new york to achieve that honor in any sport and she's a national record holder high school all-time record holder for age group in the Two thousand meter steeplechase. She's going to North Carolina State to run track. I don't know necessarily if she's going to run in the steeplechase, but that that's pretty wild to be the the all time national record holder for your age group and to have that come for me.
0: And for New people York, who don't know, NC State is a powerhouse. It is. It would be like a kid playing going to Alabama to play football, um, USC to play baseball. You know, that's NC State is a is a heavy duty. Uh, track program so super impressive obviously she's the national uh did you say record holder she just has the best time this year well both oh well of course i mean she won the record's gonna because, be the best time but
1: she's, she set the record back at the sectional meet i think she has the three fastest times and it's some kind of crazy that she's the only woman ever to break six two in the steeplechase and a certain other time i'd have to look it up in the eight hundred. Some of that is because at the college level, it's this the two thousand meter steeplechase, and they don't run that distance. But um, you know, no, nobody has ever done what she's done as a high school athlete. She's the first to ever do what she did in this two thousand steeplechase. I did want to. I know we got to go real quick, but what do you? What can you tell us about the steeplechase? I know you were a track athlete growing up.
0: <laughs> I never tried it. Um, it really, to me, was a pain in the ass. Because uh, when I did run track at Baldwin Wallace, we did have steeplechase. Now my high school we didn't have we didn't have it. I mean, you need certain accommodations to be able to run the steeplechase uh, at the high school level. and not every track can do it because of uh, you need the little pit for the water hazard. I don't even know what it's called, the, the, the jump the one jump where you have water. Um, and you need special hurdles and all that other stuff. So we didn't have it. So I was introduced to it when I went to Baldwin Wallace and ran track. And you're always, when you do your warm-up laps, there'd always be some jerk off who wanted to try to push you into the, into the water. So, um, and it was generally not clean. Uh, It would be whatever had accumulated from the rain, Uh, you know, so it was just not great. That was, that's the only, that's the only memories I, I have of the steeplechase. I do watch it. So there are long distance races I, I are painful to me. I can't watch a long distance race on television. I love to watch track and field on TV. Um, the long distance races, I find something else to watch for a while, but the steeplechase, I will watch the long distance steeplechase because there is a fatigue factor in it that adds drama because of those hurdles. They get nasty. Um, it is almost, it, it is a grueling, grueling race as opposed to just circling the track uh, what seems to be, uh, 50 times, uh, this adds an element of, all right, this guy's running out of gas. Is he going to, what's going to happen when he hits this water hazard? Um, sometimes they wipe out sometimes they, uh, and that, or they lose their spot. You know, the guy's been leading for, you know, three laps and now all of a sudden he stumbles in there and, uh, he's in sixth all of a sudden. So anyways, thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. So I can I can let you know that uh, that that would that's like me as the auto racing fan because he's watching the crashes. That's why I watch the steeplechase uh, as as uh, the track aficionado that I am. Um, okay, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to have former Bills offensive lineman Jerry Ostrowski to talk about uh, his thoughts on the Bills and uh, what's going on. Uh, with the offensive line Uh, on Tim Graham and friends, brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business in our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services By offering a wide array of consulting and outsource solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400. 716-630-2400. To learn how ctbk's one team approach can work for you welcome back to tim graham and friends brought to you by ctbk cpas and business consultants we are joined now by former buffalo bills offensive lineman jerry ostroski what's going hey, on fellas thanks for joining us hey man this is
2: awesome i i uh any any chance i have to reconnect with with guys from the past and um and Tim, obviously, we kind of we overlapped a little bit before I uh, before I retired. But uh, it's always awesome, Jonah. Good to meet you, and um, happy to be on.
0: Well, you lead right into uh, the first question here uh, that I have for you. Uh, you played from '94 to 2001, so you did miss the Super Bowl era, but you also missed the drought, uh, right. whatever that sweet spot is, if there is a sweet spot in it. Well for those who didn't get to the playoffs for 17 years or however many years it was uh, that that is a sweet spot that right. those were the those were golden era com- by comparison um i started my career in buffalo in 2000 and i was like the third guy on the beat uh right. did very little i was not memorable at all i didn't do anything of any great significance but we did overlap a little bit And I remember I interviewed you once and I didn't really think much of it. It was a group setting, but then I was told afterwards, um, you may not want to waste your time with Jerry uh, because he doesn't like us that much. And there might be a better way to spend your time in the locker room. Um, So tell me if I'm wrong, but back then you were known as having a quite a bit of contempt for the media and who we were and what our role was, uh, what what do you recall of that?
2: Actually, you know, and I and I was at the last Super Bowl. That was my first practice squad year, and then of course the last uh, season that we went to the playoffs with uh, with the Tennessee game. But I, I don't know. I think a big part of it was, and I had always been very very. I guess you'd say friendly with the media. I had no problems with the media. I actually enjoyed speaking to you guys. I think the last couple of years, it just had taken its toll with the whole Flutie Johnson thing. And just the fact that, you know, we talked about it. We're going to get into it a little bit later with the Diggs Allen thing. I, it, it was kind of one of those deals where you combine it with maybe getting on towards the end of your career and knowing you're not going to be playing that much longer. Plus, You've got this thing over the, you know, that hangs over the locker room, like a shroud every day. You had to deal with this whole, you know, Flutie Johnson thing. And it just became, I don't know. I get irritable a little bit. Uh, I get cranky and I guess I was probably a little bit cranky at that time. Um, you know, there were some things going on as far as uh, I think people kind of saw how the bills were kind of progressing. We, um, you know, everybody said that last team that went to Tennessee that played, whoever won that game was going to go to the Super Bowl. Obviously, they were correct. Tennessee goes and loses by a foot, right? Um, but it was just kind of one of those deals. I think it all came together. But no, I mean, I had a lot of very good relationships, I felt, with with the media while I was in Buffalo. Uh, Mark Dawn was great. Vic Carucci was great. Vic was a guy that I had on my show uh, when I was hosting uh, sports radio shows here in Tulsa, I had him on quite a bit when he had uh, kind of left the the Buffalo beat and kind of went to work for, I believe, NFL. Uh, dot com. So, no, I mean, I think a little bit of it was just we were all sick and tired of hearing about the Flutie Johnson deal and just we're done with it.
0: Well, we'll put a pin on that uh, because we will circle around uh, back on that. But Wait, No, I-, I,
1: got, I got to ask one quick follow-up. I mean, what was – what did you think about Flutie Johnson? What was your answer when you did get <laughs> asked that question? If you're not sick of answering it 25 years later. <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day and they were like, "They," you know, and I
2: actually had this question, I think it's a, not the other day. It was a couple months ago. We were talking about it and, you know, say what you will, both quarterbacks had, had their pluses. They had their minuses um, as far as players and what they did on the field. But all I know is this, and you know, the, the big drama of the Tennessee playoff game and Ralph, uh, forcing, uh, supposedly forcing Wade Phillips to play Rob over Doug. What I do know is this, when we left the field, we were winning that football game. So say what you want about the situation. When we walked off the field as an offensive group, Steve Christie kicks the field goal. We're winning that football game before, obviously the, uh, kick return happens. So, You know, you can look at it however way you want, but uh, both quarterbacks were very capable and both quarterbacks won quite a few games in the league.
0: All right. Well, then let's stay on it. Uh, I was going (laughs) to put a pin in it, but let's stay on We got some momentum. (laughs) Uh, Let me also, though, set up as I talk about uh, Jerry Ostrowski maybe being burned out by the media and then circling back, uh, a resurgent Jerry Ostrowski when it comes (laughs) to the media. You can uh, catch him and let me make sure that I get these right uh, because underscores always throw me off. Right. Uh, You can follow Jerry on Twitter at Ostrosky underscore big O. And then you can listen to his podcast, Line to Gain, with Sarah Larson uh, at Buffalo Rumblings. And the uh, Twitter account for that podcast is Line underscore two underscore gain, the Line to Gain podcast. Um, So, and I mentioned it uh, earlier in the podcast before you came on, Jerry, how we reconnected. Uh, You retweeted me, um, however long ago it was. It seems like months ago, but uh, because this uh, ordeal, uh, people won't stop talking about it. Um, But it was probably just two weeks ago. Uh, In essence, I said, I don't give a shit about Stefan Diggs (laughs) uh, until I know what there is to give a shit about. Uh, And a lot of people were saying, thank you for saying this. Look, I'm not ignoring it. I'm trying to find out what it is because I'm curious and it's my job to be curious. Um, I have access to the people who know. They're not telling me. And I'm not going to get it secondhand. I'm not going to go discount shopping when I can get it straight from the source. right? Right. Right. And if I can't find out, and let's face it, nobody else has found out yet. The national reporters are at best guessing and I'm talking about the four or five insiders who exist in the National Football League, the Ian Rappaport's, the Jay Glazer's, um, Adam Schefter, and those, with the exception of Jay Glazer, those guys are occasionally wrong too. Jay Glazer's just, he bats a thousand. He's amazing. They're not letting us know what this is either. They're not finding out. I don't feel deficient as a reporter that I haven't been able to unearth whatever this is. But until I do, I'm not going to guess. And I think it is reckless to guess. I think it is self-serving to guess because you're doing it for content, you're doing it for click, whatever. But in light of, I guess, from a communications standpoint, from the team, from the coaching staff, from the players, you were in a situation where it was purposely hidden, the reasoning behind it. And you even use the word supposedly Ralph Wilson forced it. We still don't really know. We don't know. There are people who claim to, there are people who are 100% sure it was this and people who are 100% sure it was that, and both of them would know. Right. So here we are in a similar situation where the team has made it clear that they are not going to tell us what this is. Is that good for 2023 or bad for 2023?
2: I think it's fine because obviously, and you you talked about it earlier, about not not caring about it. I mean, really, it's nobody's business. Um, You know, what's going on in that locker room? You can speculate. I have my own theories. But what's going on is is that's what makes the locker room so special. I mean, it's supposed to be a a place that's sacred. It's supposed to be a brotherhood. It's supposed to be a a room where things are safe. And obviously, nowadays, with massive forms of – of, of media, as far as electronic media and things getting out almost instantaneously, to me, it's kind of wild and refreshing that it hasn't gotten out, you know, because most other stuff gets out, you know, within the minute. So, um, no, I don't think it's anybody's business. Obviously they have things going on. Um, they seem to be worked out. I don't think it would have gotten very much more than the, uh, when we had the slip, from from Sean McDermott when he came out and said I was very very concerned he wasn't here then the next day he comes in and says hey I told him to go home. Well, what is it? Are you concerned he's not here or did you tell him to go home, which if you did then you would feel, you know, you wouldn't be concerned because you knew what was behind it. So obviously I think that fueled it to where they had it just about squashed but then that whole thing happens and then it starts rolling downhill once again but but, no, I agree with you. I think it's reckless to to go out there and say this is exactly what it is when really nobody knows except those guys that are in that room.
0: We had a period of three different stories in three different days, whether it yes. was last week or the week before. Again, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. I, I threw my back out last week, and I'm having a colonoscopy done in a couple of days. I'm in a little <laughs> bit of a medical.
2: Join the club. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't,
0: I'm, I've lost in the 4th of July, and I thought it was right. Sunday for about three days in a row. So, but anyways, there was that period of three days and uh, three stories in three days. So a guy right. from the Boston, Ben, Ben, I don't want to say a guy, the Ben Volen from the Boston Globe says it's, uh, he wants uh, Dorsey gone, which is one of the only, or whatever it was, which is one right. of the only things I have been able to get out of one of the sources who would know they tell me that it has nothing to do with Dorsey. Now you could, I don't, maybe they're lying to me, but all I can do is, is tell you what I've been told. So that's the only, but that's the only thing I've been told. So you have that it's Dorsey. And then the next day it was because they didn't sign uh, Deandre Hopkins with the the money that they restructured. And then on day three of that, uh, it was um, RG three during an interview saying it was Josh Allen. Right. So, I mean, come on, I mean, these are all people who purportedly are supposed to know Um, how, how do you think the bills should handle this should they just let it wither do they need to address it in training camp
2: well i think that they're they're just going to handle it internally like they've been doing and let it wither the problem is is the guy that's running routes going to allow that to happen and when i say that this is going to die down until we get to the next game where maybe the passing game isn't quite doing what you know stefan feels it needs to be doing and he has another um Uh, I don't want to say blow up, but he gets very animated on the sidelines, especially towards the quarterback. If this happens again, it's going to come back up. So it'll die out as long as the players that are involved allow it to die out. If they don't, then we're going to be back at square one. And then, you know, everybody's going to be talking about how this is the reason the bills aren't, you know, playing up to potential. This is the reason the bills are losing games or if they are losing games, whatever. So, um, yeah, I think as long as the player is allowed to die out, it will, but, um, you know, I love Stefan Diggs, one of the top receivers in the league, one of the best to ever play the game. Um, but he does have a track record. He, he forced a trade out of Minnesota and now some of those things are starting to appear in Buffalo. Hopefully they can get this thing right. And I think as long as they're playing well, you won't see much of it, but, um, does he allow it to die out? Because, you know, all this is going to be on the player's shoulders as far as, you know, keeping this thing
1: squashed. How problematic is it, regardless of why uh, Stefan Diggs wasn't at any of the voluntary OTAs and was dismissed or sent home for the first day of the mandatory mini camp, that that happened? And obviously there's something brewing that caused that kind of discord and at least made Sean McDermott yeah. say he was very concerned at one point in time
2: first of all, I don't understand not coming to the OTAs. I know everybody likes to hang their hat on the, well, they're not mandatory. They they don't have to be there. It's in a collective bargaining agreement. Yes. It's been in the collective bargaining agreement since the start of time, but I don't remember Bruce. I don't remember Thurman. I don't remember Jim. I don't remember anybody staying away maybe because of a contract situation, but if there's an OTA it was as a player, you knew it wasn't mandatory, but it was mandatory. They wanted you there. So there's that whole aspect. Um, And again, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's it's the little things that fuel the fire. If you want it to die, then, then just, you know, toe the line, show up to work when you're supposed to show up, do what you're supposed to do, be prepared to put your work in and then go home and you won't have these situations. But yet, all off season, there was these little digs, there was these little jabs, pardon the pun, and um, you know, just it just won't allow it to die. And then you have the situation you have in the first day of of, of uh, OTAs, and then the misspeak by the head coach, and now all of a sudden you've got an avalanche.
0: What do you recall of any a difficult moment that might have been similar? obviously we're talking about a super bowl contender you were on a team that had super bowl aspirations because it had gone to four straight that was the bar you had to hit throughout your time in buffalo um have you been through anything similar and and, i I mean you mentioned the johnson thing which is but is uh, i guess all right I, i that's a bad question to ask and let me ask this flutie was known as a guy who did a lot of stuff behind the scenes when you have a teammate who is doing things like that what's what's that do to the dynamic of that brotherhood in the locker room you at, at what point do you have uh do you run the risk of people choosing sides
2: you do and and that's what happened you had people choose sides um Obviously that was a, you know, you talk about being in a situation like this in the past. Yeah, I mean, that was that the, the Flutie Johnson thing was fifty times worse than this whole Stefan Diggs Josh Allen deal. Um, it just it couldn't be squashed. It had a mind of its own. But obviously, yeah, I mean it causes it, it causes problems. I mean, when people when guys know that there's things um that are maybe happening behind the scenes that that you're not a part of or they don't know about it, yeah, it becomes an issue. And, um, you know, Doug was that way. Rob was not that way. Rob was a show up and, and go to work guy. Rob Rob was not a guy that was going to campaign. He wasn't going to be a guy that politicianed for, for his job. He was going to work and, you know, he expected to be rewarded accordingly. So, you know. Do with it what you will. I think the biggest thing in that whole rivalry was what it, what it came down to was who was more effective on the field and who won more games. I mean, the NFL still, at the end of the day, in the middle of all these situations, it's about wins and losses, and you got to win football games.
0: In your experience, Jerry, um, who what makes a bad teammate behind the scenes?
2: Who. <sighs> what makes a bad teammate behind the scenes? That's um, that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Um, there's a lot of things that, that make it, I'll put it to you this way. Do you guys remember when Bill Parcells uh, was inducted into the hall of fame? Do you remember his speech at all? I do.
0: Yeah. I okay. was actually at, I was there and I, yeah.
2: <clears throat> One of the greatest speeches I've ever heard by a football guy in, 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 you know, ever in my life. And I'll be 53 in a couple weeks. And Bill talked about the locker room, and he talked about how the locker room was a place that was sacred. He talked about the locker room has all kinds of people, all different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, all kinds of people. It's a melting pot of, of, of men from across the country that come together in this room to play a game. And he said there's only one thing that matters to be able to join that locker room. And it's simple, and really, it comes down to two things. It's one are you willing to help for the common good? Are you willing to come in and do what it takes to help this football team win? And are you a good person? That's it. It's really not that complicated. And I think he summed it up so well. And I still go back to this day because sometimes I'll use. That in some, if I'm talking to a group of young kids or speeches or whatever, I'll use it and I go back and I listen to it. And are you here for the common good? If you're here to help, come on in. If you're not, get out. It's that simple. And I think the biggest thing with the NFL, and it's why guys like Chip Kelly could not win in the NFL and they couldn't do it in the NFL, is because they try to take men. He tried to take a group of men, guys that are, as, you know, in their 20s, 30s and force them like, okay, you're going to go home and you're going to sleep 10 hours tonight. Well, what I've been doing for the last so many years works pretty well. I played pretty good. Um, I might go to, you know, I've been to some Pro Bowls or whatever. Um, Why do I have to change what I'm doing? And they get these guys get hung up in all these extracurriculars when really the greatest thing is, are you willing to help for the common good? Are you a good person and willing to help? If you're helping us win, come on in. If you're not, get out. And it's really that
0: simple. I recall when Doug Whaley was asked, uh, I, th- I think it was similar, something along the lines of what what makes a a bad team or what takes a guy off your board or what's a, right. he said if you steal from a teammate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it wasn't uh, domestic right. violence or drug addiction or <laughs> just being an a hole. It was uh, but, a lot of they- people. It took a lot of people by surprise that that was his answer.
2: Right, but think about this, guys, and I, I talk about this a lot as well. I, it's kind of that love and like thing, okay? Love and like are two totally opposite things. You can like stuff, but like it goes away. If you love something, no matter what happens, you might not like. You know, if you're if you, if you love the game and you love your teammate, you might not like what he does, or you might not even like that person. Which we'll go back to the whole Digs and Allen thing in a minute. You might not like them, but you will do what you have to do to be successful and help that person be successful because you love him and you love the team that you're on. If you, if you run, if you live day to day by like, you have no substance. And, you know, love builds trust, you know, it builds, it it builds all those things. And, and that's the type of stuff that helps you win and that that goes back to what i've said about this whole josh and diggs thing i'll be honest with you you said you don't you said earlier you didn't give a shit what it was about i don't give a shit if they like each other or not i don't really care to be honest with you all i care about is when it's the game is played on saturday or 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 sunday sunday night monday night thursday night whenever it is or they flex it to saturday that they love each other and they love the team that when they go on the field they're going to do what they need to do to win. I could care less if they leave and they go to Iliot Apollos or they go to uh, you know the bar bill. I, you know, people think sometimes that NFL football is like high school or like college that everybody hangs out. It's a job, man. You know, you got – you know, Mitch Morse said it best the other day. I got shit to do. <laughs> I can't be worried about this. And, that, and that's how it is. It's, you know, when you're in meetings and practice and lifting weights and all that, it's one thing. Or you're playing games, it's one thing. But outside of it, people got lives. So, honestly, I could care less if they like one another. All I care about is if is that they love each other, they love the team enough, they love the franchise, they're going to do what they need to do. But That's the way I look at it.
1: Do you think it matters at all in the sense, you know, Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs were on the cover of Sports Illustrated for Kids with kind of a best friend type, I think that was the headline, something like that. People in Buffalo, I don't know if you've ever seen this, have Allen Diggs political signs on their wall. I saw them.
2: Yeah, I saw some t-shirts.
1: They've been, and when things were going better in previous years, they would say things at press conferences about how much they loved each other, how Stephon Diggs came to Buffalo specifically because he wanted to play with Josh Allen, things like that. If that relationship was a certain way and it's been strained, I mean, does that matter? Should should Bills fans be distressed at all, if possibly, uh, thing the dynamic is different than it used to be? I don't know. Like that
2: leads me back to eighty three plus twelve equals six. I don't know how you know. I don't know what their relationship was like. I don't know if they they ate dinner together as a family every Thursday night. You know, uh, talking about Andre Reed, Jim Kelly. Yeah, um, this. I think some of this stuff was spawned from the fact that they had 17 years of drought in the playoffs and they were, they had no solid quarterback to hang their hat on. They had, they had had these, these, for lack of better term, superhero type players for years that they went to four Super Bowls. And these guys are all in the hall of fame now, not even counting Marv and Ralph and Bill Polian, And then they go on the 17 year drought and they were, they were yearning the bills mafia was wanting something so badly that this happens. And of course it took a a mind of its own. And then you got the Allen Diggs and and all those things, but I don't know. I mean, you see those things in a lot of places. Um, I think, I I think in Buffalo, maybe it takes a little bit more uh, of a focus because it is that small, smaller community, people have more contact with players maybe than they do in other cities that are huge. And yes, I mean, Bill's mafia is the greatest fan base in the league and they do, they do have their players and they will, you know, feverishly back them. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, you can look at it however you want. I think there's a lot of factors to play into it, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously they've been depicted as the you know a dynamic duo or best friends however you want to put it but in retrospect again there's theory and then there's reality and i think everybody that's been in a locker room and you guys have been there and you've been around it enough you understand what the real reality of it is
0: jerry uh before we move on to the offensive line anything else about this to even discuss it's been here we we we're <laughs> We've been talking about it for 25 Fascinate. minutes as something that shouldn't be is something that's not worth our right. time, right? So I'll be, we are looking at yeah. it from a little bit of a different angle than, you know, we're not we're not throwing shit against the wall here. Right. Uh we're talking about how it works. Um but anyway, anything more to even say about about this?
2: Uh without getting way into it, looking from the outside in, I think this is you know, this is one of these things would you I honestly think that that this is my theory and I have not gotten anything from anybody, but just looking at it from the outside in and being in a locker room and seeing the situation, I think it's a big respect thing with the, with, with Stefan. I think it's a huge respect thing. I think he has a chip on his shoulder and feels that he's been disrespected quite a bit in the fact that you've paid me like the top receiver in the league yet you kind of quietly usher my wide receivers coach out the door and then never even consult me about his replacement. You didn't do that with Josh. Um, You know, there's, there's all these different things that kind of come into it. And I think he's looking at it as a fact of if I'm supposed to be one B, if Josh is one a and I'm one B, well, I would demand a little bit of respect. Like, like that number one spot. So I look at it as a respect thing with him. I think he's putting everybody in check saying, understand this, yes, he is the quarterback. He is the guy of the future. We hope he plays 14 more years. But without Stefan Diggs, who, by the way, is on the cusp of Hall of Fame numbers, what what is he? what is that guy going to do? So that's the way I look at it. I look at it as a huge respect thing with him and and maybe feeling slighted that he hasn't had a say like josh has that's that's my theory that's a
0: it's a smart take from a that's guy who's theory. played the game a little bit
2: yeah so that that's kind of how i look at it it's like the old uh it's like uh you ever see the movie bronx tale with uh yes with jazz palminteri to and and c and would you rather be loved or feared i'd rather be feared it's the same thing. Would you rather be loved? It's just about respect. And um, I just, that's that's what I think it is. And, you know, because it's definitely not about money. I mean, he's the top three paid guy in the league. Um, you know, targets, I don't know. Um, he did come out just today. And you know that he's very cryptic in his releases of information. Um, cryptic to the point where he does it and probably sits back and watches the the Twitter page, if he's able to, to watch Twitter, because, you know, if Elon didn't shut his off because of too many, uh, too many views, but he did say that Chad, uh, Chad Hall was the best wide receivers coach he's ever had at any level. He released that today. So kind of like Aaron Rodgers, who, when, um, Mike McCarthy unceremoniously fired my good friend and former Buffalo bill, Alex Van Pelt, he lost his mind because nobody consulted him and Alex was his guy. Maybe there's a little bit of that here too.
0: Who is the best offensive line coach you ever played for? And I'll uh Tom Bresnahan, Carl Mock and Ronnie Vic Larick Well, if I if
2: I take my my college guy out of it, Mark Thomas who taught me a lot of things as far as how to play the position, more along the lines of the demeanor I needed to have to play the position. Tom Bresnahan was was by far, I thought, the best offensive line coach, and if you ask some of the other guys that played from that era, they would tell you the same thing, because the thing that Tom did, and I'll give you a little bit of story about it, when I was on the practice squad, um, I kind of had a unique way of of using my hands and pass pro, the way I, the way I punched a, a defensive lineman, and it kind of drove Tom crazy, so Tom decided one day, he calls me, and he says, hey, we're going to and he starts teaching me this whole new way he wants me to do it. So I start doing it the way he wants me to do it. And I go two weeks straight Nolan Ryan, no hitter. I haven't won a rep in like two weeks doing it the way he wants me to do it. So it's probably, I think it was Wednesday, which is our first work day of the week. A couple of weeks later, he grabs me out on the field and he kind of pulls me aside. He goes, he always say, he always call you baby. He goes, Hey baby. Remember all those things I taught you the last couple of weeks about how I want you to punch and pass, bro? I said, yeah, coach. He goes, forget that shit, man. Do it the way you want to do it. <laughs> so I went back to do it the way I always did it, and I started winning reps again, which leads me to the fact that Tom was really, really good at allowing players to do what they did well as long as the outcome was what he wanted. He did not force fit technique. He allowed players to show him what they did and how they did it. And if it worked, why do I want to change that? It's kind of like a a pitcher with his rotate with his, with his wind up or his release points and all those things. If he's, if he's throwing gas and he's winning games, why do I want to change him? And um, I thought Tom was really good at that. The other thing Tom was exceptional at was game planning. Um, He really had a knack for breaking down plays. He had a knack for teaching plays and he always explained why we were doing it that way that week. It was never because I told you so. So um, if you were a cerebral guy and you liked the the X's and O's and the ins and outs of line play and really enjoyed those types of things and theories and, and all that stuff, Tom was the guy he wanted to coach you. And uh, I'd say he was probably the best one uh, besides my uh, college coach.
0: I know that there are nuances from position group to position group and your answer might not be the same as a defensive back right. or as a, an outside linebacker um and that's also not to say that you can't be taught anything as you just explained at the at the NFL level but when you are good enough to get to the NFL you've chances are you've been taught very well you right. have strong fundamentals already um so what does it take in the, in the national football league uh, to be a good position coach? Hmm. Like what, what are the traits that, well, again, it goes back to,
2: I think the biggest thing is when you get guys in the league and, and I always say this, people ask me all the time, well, you know, how did you play for as long as you did? And I played what, eight or nine years, how did you play that long? And I, you know, I tell all of them and I really mean this, I can't even count on two hands how many players came into that locker room that had more physical talent than I did. But they had no idea how to be a pro. And I was lucky enough to come in the practice squad and be on the practice squad for about, I'd say, a year and a half, maybe a year total, part of one year and part of the next year. I had the luxury of sitting in a, in a meeting room and being lockered right next to a guy named Ken Hull. And um, if you want to talk about understanding what it means to be a pro, and it even goes down to to Bruce Smith, it goes to Thurman, it goes to Jim. Those guys weren't the, they weren't a the Hall of Fame players be, just by luck. And you had a you had an opportunity to learn and and watch these guys be just consummate professionals, and you got to learn that. Um, I think it goes, you know, same thing with these with with a position coach. He understands these guys are good to come into the room. How does he get these guys to understand what it's like to be a, you know, a 16 game now, 17 game schedule player. How do they realize that they need to take care of their bodies differently than they've ever taken care of them? How does he get these players that are brought to him by these scouts and, and by the draft to understand what it means to be a pro and to be able to go on the field and, and be reliable, be durable and, and you know, and put in, put in good time. So That's a big thing is getting those guys. And then the other thing is, is seeing that talent because everybody has talent and figuring out how to mold it within the pro game, because, you know, you get in the league and you're going to get chewed on some, but by that point in time, most of us are our own worst critics. Um, We understand when we mess up, we understand what the deal is. So how do I get this guy to play with the confidence that I want him to play with to understand the talent he has? to be that pro and get on the field. So that's a big deal. And then the other thing is obviously is, is technique. I think a lot of it is technique because there's so much raw physical ability. Are you a technician? Are you able to get these guys to step correctly, head placement, hand placement, you know, and do the things? Because obviously if you come in and you're struggling and, and this is, this is, um, you know, this is the what you're going to have to do with this kid from Florida this year that the bills picked in the second round. Obviously, a massive man, uh, tremendous athletic ability. He will need to learn some things technique wise to be a good pro. Does that does does a uh, Kugler have that ability to teach that to him? And I believe he does. So that that's the biggest thing. I mean, you don't have to reinvent football with guys coming into that, that room, but you got to be able to tweak them and get them where you want them in, in a certain way so that they can they can play well and be be solid pros.
0: What's the difference between fundamentals and technique?
2: Uh, same thing, okay. same thing. I didn't yeah, know if funda- maybe there was a nuanced yeah. aspect of no, technique. No, no, it's fundamentals and, and technique are the same thing. So when I talk about technique, you can say fundamentals. So when I say fundamentals, you know, your stance. You when, when the play is called, okay, I line up, I look at the defensive lineman's alignment, and I know before the ball snapped how I'm supposed to step, where my hat's supposed to go, where my help is coming from, all of those things are already so it's it's a pre-snap read. And it's probably the biggest thing that a young offensive lineman struggles with is understanding that 50% of the of the play is won before the ball's even snapped. That's why we had guys like John Fina and Glenn Parker that played long, long careers, were were great players, but they were so cerebral and they were so they were so able to figure things out before they even happened. Um, you know, Kent was that way. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time to learn that stuff. And that goes into another thing, you know, what you, you answered, asked earlier about being a good position coach. Um, so yes, those fundamentals, hands, head, and feet are the three. You'll hear an offensive line coach say those things a million times. He'll say hat placement, hand placement, fit your, your steps, hat, hands and feet. Those are the three things. Fundamentally you got to have right, or you're going to have a tough time, uh, winning some blocks.
0: All right, Jerry, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up with this. Uh, Your thoughts on the offensive line as it's composed. Um, And Um, You know, I, 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 some, you know,
2: we're before this draft and I don't know how you guys felt. uh, I don't know what you felt as far as, you know, Joni, your analysis of this football team, Tim, your analysis football team, everybody talked about, we need a number two receiver. We need all these things. I felt our biggest weakness was up the middle on both sides of the ball. I felt our we were we were weak up the middle, minus Mitch Moore, so I think he's a good player, although he's starting to have the injury bug. I thought we were weak up the middle on both sides. When I said, I mean, our defensive tackles, our nose guards, our guards, and, and, and all of that, and we had to get stronger up the middle, including middle linebacker, and obviously the Bills felt the same way because um, if you really look at it, and you'd look at what Ed Oliver got on his contract redo um, money really wasn't the issue of keeping, keeping uh, uh, um, Edmonds around. Uh, if they wanted them, they probably would have found a way to keep them. I think they wanted to move on because they felt the same thing. And I think um, it's
0: because they had so much invested right. already in Matt Milano. Um, you know, there, obviously there's, yeah, it's a, it's a Rubik's cube and right. yeah, they could have, they weren't out of money, but you're right. You're right. right.
2: I, I just think that, especially with McDermott taking this defense over, which is another story in itself, um, I just think they wanted to go a different route there. So I was happy to see, you know, they make the pick of, the, of, uh, of Torrance in the second round. I like him a lot. I mean, the fact that he fell in their lap at two to me was crazy. I think he has the opportunity to be a pro bowl type player, um, you know, started in Louisiana went down to Florida, proved himself in the SEC, blocked a bunch of – well, I say blocked a bunch of dudes and went to Philly, blocked the entire Georgia defense that's now in Philadelphia because I think they drafted everybody. But um, I like that. I'm lukewarm on McGovern. I don't know what to expect out of him. Um, I don't think he's a guy that's going to take somebody and move somebody from point A to point B. I think he's much more of a run – and screen or run and shield guy than he is actually a physical mauler, but if you look at the makeup of this offensive line, everybody's built the same. They're all about six five. They're all about three ten. They're flat bellies. That's why the Torrance pick was so different. Um, so um, they get him. They get the kid from uh, they get the kid from the Rams to come over. Give maybe give him some depth. I still think Bates is a good player. I don't think McGovern starting at left guard is is a uh, is is set in stone. And if he is, I could see Bates, you know, fighting and, and clawing and winning that spot over at, uh, you know, maybe somewhere else. So we'll see how that goes. But the thing that I'm most concerned about about our offensive line is our tackles. And when I say this, obviously, I'm giving Spencer Brown a pass last year, and this is why. Coming off the back surgery and the, and the surgery that he had, he was nowhere near where he would normally be at the start of last season because his surgeries and his injuries prevented him from training the way he needed to train. I mean, it was quite obvious he was not where he needed to be. He gutted it out last year, fought his ass off because he's obviously that type of guy, but we know he can play better. So hopefully, and I expect to see him play better this season. Dawkins, on the other hand, I think Dawkins gained a little bit of weight. I think Dawkins got a little complacent. And because of that, his play slipped a little bit, I thought, last season. He's a tremendous player. He's a Pro Bowl guy. But I think he needs to get himself back where he was a few years ago. And what what causes them to do that? Well, I think there's a little bit of complacency. Obviously, they needed a talent infusion in that position to push some people. I still don't know if the tackles are going to be pushed very much. You got Quisenberry backing up Uh, inside. Obviously there's going to be a ton of competition. McGovern, the guy from the Rams, you know, they draft uh, Torrance, Mitch, who's Mitch's backup, probably Bates. Bates is your swing man. Um, So you have that and there's going to be a ton of competition inside. I worry about the lack of competition outside. Hopefully Dawkins comes back in tip top shape. Hopefully Brown has an off season this year like he didn't have last year. And now all of a sudden that's a little bit of a different group, but still, even with that, I don't think if you're looking for a group that's going to be like Eric Williams, Nate Newton, Stepnoski, you know, that they're going to go, you know, Gogan and two and a, that they're going to just grab people, choke them out and move them on their, on their own. um, That's not this group. They're much more of an outside zone, outside stretch team, create space with movement and let the backs pick and uh, choose where they want to go. And um, so I think, you know, just looking at the body types and everything, that's their theory. That's how they play. But I do expect them to be better because I think there's some things that have been, you know, that will be different this year as opposed to last year.
1: You think? What do you think about the running game overall with some of the same running backs but a different mix and then the changes they made with the offensive line?
2: Well, I say this. um, Everybody that cries the blues and says we have no running game, uh, to have a running game, you have to, to sell out to the running game. You have to be able to give it to your tailback 25, 30, 35 times a game like we did with Thurman. Um, do you want to take the ball out of Josh Allen's hands 30 times a game? I don't I I don't necessarily want to. Um, and I think because of that, I think the Bills feel the same way. And I think you're gonna see the running game continually be a complementary piece to the uh to the offensive scheme. I don't think you're ever going to go in there and they're never going to give the ball to uh to anybody, you know, 25, 30 times a game. You know, obviously they made some some uh some moves this offseason. They let Singletary go, but they bring in guys that are just like Singletary. Um it's still gonna be a running back by committee. Um I will say this, I think the um the one that's obviously People talked about the uh, the Himes pickup from from the Colts last year, the trade to get him in there. Um, I think it's becoming more and more evident he wasn't brought in to be a tailback. He was brought in to be a kick returner, um, and he is a good one at that. So you're going to see a lot of the same thing in the backfield, John. I think you're going to see a ton of, of by committee, and you're going to see the Bills use it as a complimentary piece, but you're never going to see him sell out to it.
0: Gary, thank you for doing this. Um, anything else you want to – talk about the bills before we let you go is there anything (laughs) hanging around out there no i don't not not the slow season we're supposed to not have anything to talk about right right
2: not the slow season. obviously all that you know the reason july in football is bad is because it's the month that the coaches all go on vacation so even college football if you go to any beach in florida it will be covered with football coaches college and professional coaches because they all get the same weeks off it's like the first three or four weeks of July before they have to come back and prep up and, and ramp up for training camp. So, um, no, it's dead. Obviously, I'm real excited to see what Kincaid does. Um, I had to laugh everybody that was saying that we finally can can run 12 personnel because we, we drafted Kincaid. I'm like, you're not going to run 12 personnel still. It's going to be 11 and a half because you still don't have a full another full tight end to play the other spot. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing what he does as far as playing in the slot, stretching uh, stretching the defense and getting some mismatches. You know, obviously the Diggs-Allen thing, we'll see how that goes. But, um, you know, I think the Bills – I think the Bills – I think Bean's done an amazing job. He's gotten more with less. It's almost like the old Bill Belichick way of doing things. We're going to hang out, be patient. Then I'm going to go pluck veterans like Puna Ford. That Puna Ford signing was huge. We're going to plunk veterans for less money, but bring them in because they want to be a part of this culture that we built. And we, we know that they're not the player that they were five or six years ago, but they can still do a few things really, really well. And we're going to keep them in that role so that they can be successful. Um, I think he's done a tremendous job this offseason with that. And some of the signings that he's had, and um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm glad they've gotten a little bit better because the rest of the division has gotten better too. And I think the AFC East, is the best division in football this season.
0: I just thought of another question, Jerry, because this is supposed to be the slow season. Right. Um, Top three teammates you worried about in between breaking mini camp and (laughs) returning to training camp a month later.
2: (laughs) That's uh, probably myself. So, I didn't go to like the the, the the pizza, the pizza and wing place and eat myself into oblivion because I was always one that had to be on the scale every week. Uh, Dusty Ziegler was a good one because Dusty was a center from Notre Dame that played offensive line with us. He played center and guard just because Dusty lived in like Clio, Georgia. And when he would leave, it was kind of like a Kent thing. You wouldn't, ne- you would never see him again until he had to show up. So, we, we often wondered if he was going to show up and, um, you know, I didn't worry about Rube too much. I think the organization worried about Rube. I didn't worry about Rube because Rube, I know what Rube was about. I knew where his heart was and where his mind was. And that was being one of the best guards in the history of the game. And he obviously did that. And I'd expect to see him in Canton one day. So you're
0: limiting it just to fellow offensive linemen.
2: Well, see again. I didn't pay enough attention to anybody else. I was more worried about my own guys in my own room. I didn't I didn't really worry about anybody else. I didn't, I, I loved the molds. Eric molds and I were great buddies. Um, I, I didn't know what Eric did and didn't really care what Eric did. You know, Pat Williams, Ted, all those guys, we were friends, but it's not like a, you know, you were friends there, but you left. And I didn't have enough time. You don't have enough time in the day to be friends with everybody or do stuff with everybody. I think, I think the one guy I did the most stuff with was, uh, Alex Van Pelt. Cause we both love to hunt and fish. So we did a bunch of that together, uh, while I was up there in Western New York. But, but no, I, I keep it to my guys in my room. That's where I'm, I'm well-versed, and well-educated.
0: Yeah, somebody was going to maybe buy a, a barrel full of grenades for the 4th of July or you know, try yeah, to and, try and, to take yeah. a, 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 poached, uh, Bengal tiger through airport security <laughs> or Nothing like that
2: I, it wasn't I th- it wasn't that crazy. it really wasn't uh, I don't th- I mean obviously there's stories throughout the Super Bowl years and stuff and you always have stories but it never got that wild. I really it, it I say that well maybe there was one time, but no it never it never got that wild. We weren't stealing tigers or bears or anything like that
0: and nobody was tweeting boom. <laughs> and there you know, weren't cell yeah nobody had cell phones uh cameras right
2: right it's like uh i don't know if you remember uh, uh he was gone by the time you got there there's an offensive guard named corbin lacina and he used to always say what what you don't know you can't repeat and uh yeah without cell phones <laughs> and, and twitter and everything else, if you don't <laughs> if you don't know it you can't repeat it so yeah it wouldn't
0: adopt that
2: yeah yeah please do. Was, I've got a lot of good ones. Some of them come from Carl mock. Some of them come from Tom Bresnahan.
0: Oh, you All right. Okay. So I did want to ask, all right, again, not to keep dragging it out. Carl mock was something. I mean, he yes. was the offensive line coach when yes. I, I, I missed Bresnahan, you mentioned Bresnahan, but I was kind of, I, I, I gave the list earlier when I asked that question, Tom Bresnahan, Carl mock, Ronnie Vinklaric, were your three bills, offensive line coaches, and Bresnahan and Mock were not the same personality. No. Um Mock every time I looked at Mock I thought he was going to have a stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh he was a big screamer.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um what did the players think of him?
2: I think most most <laughs> most we most of us love Carl because we knew who Carl really was. There was a there was a performance Carl and a behind the scenes Carl. Now when I say that, you know Carl coached you hard. And my relationship with Carl was great until I was moved to center. And then when my, when I moved to center, my relationship was horrible because Carl played center, and nobody in the world could play center like Carl. And he made sure you knew that. So when you play that position, you're under constant scrutiny uh, with him. But no, Carl was a big-hearted guy. Um, you know, if you played for him, and you, you know he played and he he got into the league the tough way he didn't get into the way to e- into the league the easy way and um i don't know if you know any of his history he played center for the for the Houston Oilers well he and was how,
0: a 13th round pick yeah. and he lasted 13 years in the NFL yes. and he was on those love you blue Oilers yes. teams blocking for Earl Campbell yes
2: and played um, for Wade's dad Wade, Bum. right and
0: yep. uh, just a tremendous—I mean, one of the yeah. great running teams right. of all time. Of course, Earl Campbell had a little something to do with that.
2: Yeah, Carl but was a Lock- mean, Carl was a mean, tough, son of a bitch, and he played that way, and he 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 coached that way, and I think he always had that chip on his shoulder, like he felt somebody was trying to take something from him, um, you know. And that's what motivated him, you know. That was his trigger. But um, he was a very good guy. Was a, you know, his wife was amazing vicky is the sweetest woman you'll ever meet which is usually how it is it's, it's they say about my wife you know you're you, you always marry the opposite but um yeah carl was great i i had no problems with carl other than when i played center it was never good enough
0: yeah i wouldn't based <laughs> on what i saw of him on the sidelines i wouldn't want carl mock raising children so it's i would hope
2: <laughs> that the the well, law he of has law, like he the law has of selection would be like the yeah. science who you know yeah. God, yeah,
0: he, you know yeah he has wired brains to make too. sure
2: yeah i don't know i have i've kind of lost track of carl i had talked to him here and there i don't think he's doing very good i have to figure out um i have to get a hold of somebody john levera i don't know if you remember that name john levera yeah. was wade's d-line coach he lives up in pittsburgh kansas which is about two hours and 30 minutes 245 up uh above tulsa and um, I used to talk to him once at a blue moon. I need to hit up John, and he seems to, he always keeps track of Carl. So does Mike Devlin, who's well, a. Well, here's coach a good excuse.
0: League. I just looked it up. He turns 76 on Friday, yeah. So it's going to be his birthday. Give yep. your old coach a call for his birthday. Jesus, right. come on, we'll, Jerry. We'll, have, we'll we'll have to
2: we'll have to see uh, we'll have to see how I get a hold of him. I don't know if I have his number or not, but I can call Mike and
0: get it from him. So. I problem. might actually have a number if it's still Ronnie, good. Oh, really? I'll send it to you. Okay. And I Ronnie, mean, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't spoken to him in 17, 18 years. Right. But right, right. I'm, I might have a number for you.
2: And Ronnie, even Clark. I mean, Ronnie and I didn't. I didn't really play for Ronnie because I broke my leg in the preseason, and so I was out most of the year. I came back for seven games. I played for him a little bit but i always respected ronnie because of his story um and his story is well versed it's out there there was an espn piece on it uh, i know there's numerous articles written about how he basically took over the role of mom and dad and raised his siblings on his own at a young at a young age and um i always respected him for that um anybody you know we talked about it earlier about just you know are you, are you here for the to, you know for the common good and to help and are you a good person um, I think he kind of epitomized that whole thing. So I always respected him. I actually talked to him a little bit over the years because he coached at SMU for a while with Phil Bennett, and uh, he recruited and offered one of my offensive linemen uh, back when I was coaching in high school here uh, so many years ago, uh, offered one of my players to go down to SMU. So, um, But, yeah, I just I don't have the extensive time with Ronnie that I did with, with Tom and Carl.
0: Jerry, thanks for talking with us about your time with the bills, what you think about these current bills, uh finding a way to talk for a half hour about something that I right. insist isn't worth talking about. <laughs> that's uh, how
2: it goes. I mean, that's why it's good. That's why when you come in, when you come in unprepared, it's always good. And and if you guys are ever willing, um, we always are looking for guests for our podcast. We'll have you guys on either, okay. you know, I don't know if you're a package deal, if you have to come on both at the same time, or <laughs> you have one and then the other, or how that goes, we'd, you know, we'd love to have you on and talk. Uh
0: I'm available when Jonah can't make it. I'm the backup. I'm okay. the, I'm the proxy. So Jonah gets first dibs and then I'm okay. always uh, available. If he's uh if he's booked by a prior engagement.
2: Now Timmy, I have to ask, are you, are you still at the
0: athletic? Yes. Okay, good. We, I thought we do, so. We do need to double check these days.
2: Yes. I, I thought so. And I kind of felt bad asking. I read the athletic all the time. But I was like, I, I don't think I saw I didn't see something from you recently or something. I no, was like, I haven't man. written in a
0: little while. I took yeah. some time off. Um, this whole ESPN uh, thing's got me shook, man. I gotta ask. And Joan always likes to make fun of the fact that I don't write a lot, anyways. <laughs> uh, so sometimes it's hard to tell if I've been laid off. So uh, how'd you? No, guys I'm get still drawing a check.
2: How'd you guys get hooked up? Just friends through through the business met each other through the drinking business? buddies. Yeah, it's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. Perfect.
0: It's an excuse a, to get together and gab and make a couple bucks.
2: Now, do you go on the road, or you just you guys are always at home?
0: Well, I'm, I don't
1: really travel. You do? I,
0: I travel with the Bills, and I will be a lot more this year because uh, Joe Biscalia, who covers uh, the Bills for the Athletic, is uh, his wife is due. Okay. And I, I it's September, so uh, he's okay. got to be. He can't. He can't make the trips. So, um,
2: well, I'll hit you up. Um, I'll yeah. be in Kansas City. Obviously, it's three and a half hours away. I went last year. Feel like we go there every year. Uh, I might go to Miami because a kid that I kind of helped that was an offensive alignment at the University of Tulsa is up for a, a job down there in the front office. So if he gets that, then I I told him I can wear neutral colors if he gives me free tickets. Um, so maybe I'll go down that game. And I try to get back to a game in Buffalo. I did last year. I was at that that Saturday night Miami game, which was was a lot of fun. I took my boys back with me, and it was a
0: blast. Well, thanks again for this, Jerry. And to everyone out there listening, make sure that you uh, follow Jerry at ostrosky underscore Big O. Listen to his Line to Gain podcast with Sarah Larson at Buffalo Rumblings. And uh, if you could, for both of us, give our podcast a like, rate us, give it the thumbs up, give it however many stars you think it deserves, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Uh, because uh, it helps us uh, keep bringing these uh, podcasts to you. And uh, Jerry, whenever you want me on, let me know. I owe you, yep. and uh, I'm grateful for your time.
2: All right, you guys let am in. And guys, I appreciate it. Timmy, Jonah, thank you so much. Let's do it again sometime.
0: And thanks to everybody out there for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs, and Business Consultants.